April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am excited to announce that this week's sponsor is Farlex Reels. For those of you who haven't heard of Farlex Reels, it could be time you did. I saw my first one while guiding a client in BC. His reel was almost sexier than the fish he was landing, and the sound it made was different to the other click and paw reels I'd heard in the past. It was only a matter of time before I had a Farlex of my own, and now, with confidence, I can tell you that it's the best classic style reel I've owned. From the steady hum to the reliability while handling large fish, Farlex reels are best described as butter. You can find Farlex at www.farlexreels.com. Author of five fly fishing books, fly shop owner, guide, and instructor, Rick Kustich is a major contributor to the Midwest fly fishing scene. In this episode of Anchored, we talk about Great Lake Steelhead and what we can expect to find in his latest book. I was born and raised in Grand Island, New York, which is actually an island in the upper Niagara River. So growing up in an area that Although it was easily accessible to, you know, population, there was some isolation with growing up on an island and certainly was the main reason that I became interested in fishing because I was literally surrounded by water. Really had no other choice but to embrace it. Did your parents fish? My dad was a bit of a fisherman, but uh, probably my biggest influence came from my brother, my cousin, and uncle, who were all, uh, and my my grandfather as well. All were, um, you know, were fishermen and, and really you know, again, embraced the area that we were living in and took well advantage of it. So you're surrounded by water. What fish were you surrounded by? The, the Niagara, at least today, is, a, is an extremely diverse fishery, and it has cold water fish, warm water fish in it, you know, from top to bottom. The upper part of the river, the, the, the portion that's above Niagara Falls, is mainly a warm water fishery, so it's smallmouth, largemouth, uh, musky, pike. Um, back when I was growing up, you know, the Great Lakes were kind of just just beginning to come out of the tailspin that occurred in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, environmentally, uh, they were, you know, quite compromised, damaged. Uh, so, you know, through the late 60s, 70s, they were beginning to recover. So it was mainly, you know, smallmouth bass and muskie on the upper part of the, the Niagara. And then below the, the falls, particularly as, you know, we moved into the 70s and 80s, um, there was runs of salmon and steelhead. And there still are, you know, solid runs of salmon and steelhead and native lake trout as well. Now, when you say this devastation in the 60s, was that as a result of the locks that were put in? No, it was mainly uh, environmental. Pesticides from runoff from agriculture, excessive amounts of phosphorus that entered into the lake system uh, that were put into detergents. It, it, it um, created a situation in the lakes where they were actually became too fertile and it kind of choked out you know various levels of the uh, food chain oh i didn't know about any of this yeah so it's really that was what it was really many of the native fish you know took a real uh, beating back in those days and it was one of the reasons that steelhead and salmon programs were uh, you know kind of stepped up or implemented in the late 60s and 70s were as an effort to get the lakes back into uh, back into balance Wow, that is really fascinating. Yeah. Now, I've got to say, because I know that my listener can hear some very strange noises, this is the most unique podcast I've done. And I have podcasted in wall tents and 
echoing rooms that sound like you're standing in a hallway. Right now we are sitting in a car. <laughs> Very strange. So you, we have decided to meet in the middle. So I drove out from Cleveland and you also drove out an hour and a half. Now where did you drive out from? From near the Buffalo, New York area. Okay, so, so Grand Island is just a, and I still live near there. Oh. It is a suburb of, of Buffalo. Okay, so it, yeah. it's, it stayed in your blood. You never left. No, I didn't. I've traveled. I've thought about leaving over the years, um, and, but I never have. I've just, um, uh, you know, I've stayed connected, I guess, to the area, you know, from, from my, I guess, mainly from my family standpoint, but then also, you know, as I developed, I, you know, a real connection to the area, especially as the fishing kind of developed as I was growing up and then established a business here. And, you know, so now I've never left and I, you know, still like it around this area. Wow. That's excellent. Yeah. Okay. So help me with your timeline. Okay. You fished growing up. I'm assuming you fished throughout high school. Where do you take the step into the fishing industry? Well, let's see. So, yes, I uh, grew up fishing and began actually fly fishing when I was about 12 or 13, self-taught, learned everything I, I, I initially knew from a Joe Brooks trout fishing book, which I think is a common for our, for people that were uh, beginning fly fishing in, you know, I guess in my era. Uh, that was a, a, a real Bible for many. And taught myself how to cast. Actually, my first, I didn't even have a fly rod. I started casting with a spinning rod and an old level line and, and um, you know, fishing for trout up in the Adirondacks is really where I kind of got started. And that just continued and really had a, a tremendous interest into it. And then probably when I was uh, about in my mid-20s, I started to guide and okay. um, guided for a number of years. And then probably about 10 years after that, I we started a shop, a fly shop. Now, which shop was this? Uh, this was the Oak Orchard Fly Shop, which we started up on the Oak Orchard Creek in Orleans County in New York. When you say um, we, Rick, who did you start it up with? Uh, actually... It was with a, a partner, Bob Morrissey, and my wife at the time, ex-wife now, and we were partners in the business. And uh, started the the um, we we bought a small shop that was owned by Jerry Senecal, and it was actually in the front part of his old of his house. It was in an old farmhouse. That's so yeah, cool. So it really started out nice. Then about a year later, we bought a building. It was really a neat old building. It was the post office in um, uh, up in this town. And we converted that into a shop and uh, a lodge upstairs. Ah, oh, this uh, is so cool. What yeah. year was this? Oh, 90, I think 96, okay. 95, 96. And we ran that in that location with another location down the southern tier of New York for about three years. And then we moved the entire shop into the Buffalo, the suburbs of Buffalo. Did you stop guiding after you started the shop? Um, I was guiding some, but we along with the shop had a nice small outfitting business and I, I mainly managed that and did some teaching and did some uh, you know seminars and things like that through so the shop. When did you sell the shop? I'm assuming um, you sold the shop. Yes I did. I sold the shop. I'm gonna my timeline's a little fuzzy on that, but I think it was about two thousand and five, two thousand six. Okay, so you had it for the better yeah. part of ten years. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why did you sell the shop? Um it was it, there was, a, 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 I guess, a number of reasons, but one, um, things, well, things didn't work out with my wife, so we, we split up, and, yeah, that, she was partner in that, and uh, it, I don't know, there was just, we had gone through a, a period where shops were growing very, you know, quite readily, and I will never say it was, the business was easy back then, but it was certainly 
much less competition than there is now. With the internet. Yeah, internet and big box stores, and really there was very little of that back then. Right. Um, so I, I started feeling that that some of that pinch by the the middle of the two, you know, in the middle two thousands, and um, just thought it was a you know a good time to kind of move on and pursue some other things. That's fair. Yeah. Now, were you a pretty well known angler at this point? I, I think throughout the Great Lakes. By that time, I had. By 1998, I'd published or had written two books. And so, that's what I want to get yeah. to. Okay, so you had written the book while while you had the shop. Yes, the second. So there was, I, I published one in 1992. That, now looking back at it, it's a pretty rough guide, but it was. What uh, is it? It was called Fly Fishing the Great Lakes Tributaries. Okay. And um, at the time, it was really the first, oddly enough, it was, I think it's still best-selling book I've ever had, even though the quality of it, I look back at it now and really I'd almost hate to have anybody see it. A lot but, of people love that book, though. Yeah. Why? Why would you be embarrassed? Oh, I, mean, just, I, I know just, we look at our writing later yeah, and we're always embarrassed just, later. Just the writing and the, everything about it. I mean, it just, you know, it's, I'd like to think I've advanced so far from it all that, uh, but it's, you know, it is the beginnings and you, you, didn't, you need to look back at you know, where he came from. Why don't you do a revision or do a revised well, edition? Well, pretty much have. Um, you know, that really focused on almost all the species that run into the tributary. So then in 2000, um, my brother and I, my brother Jerry, who's, you know, been, you know, my fishing, one of my fishing partners throughout my life, and he's, he's a bit older than I, uh, we collaborated on a, a book called Fly Fishing for Great Lakes Steelhead. Oh, okay. And, you know, and that was almost 300 page book that really I, I I like to think you know helped redefine steelhead fishing in the Great Lakes. I um, have that book. Okay. Great. I'll be reviewing it for this podcast great. to go up on the website. Great. And um and and it really uh you know I think changed the way that other anglers looked at the fishery and I do think that that was uh, something that I like to think really that my brother and I was able to really contribute to uh, you know the steelhead fishery. And at that one, we've that that was a self-published book as well, and um, yeah, again, very well received and uh, you know well reviewed. You know, so to, we're at now. I um, wrote another book in two thousand and thirteen. Oh, okay. And this one is actually published by Stackpole, and it's entitled "Advanced Fly Fishing for Great Lakes Steelhead." And what this book really, I, I don't like the title. And if there's anything that I kind of in this book that you know in, in any reviews is the title seems to have uh, tripped some people up but uh, um, it really focuses on spay fishing and swinging the fly in the Great Lakes. Now has it tripped people up because it's it in, intimidates them because this is advanced or because it's not actually advanced? Yeah I think some to me it's advanced because there has been really nothing of any substantial nature written written on spay fishing and swinging the fly in the Great Lakes. Okay, so it's an advancement yeah. of steelheading. Okay, I, I, that's how I guess I'm looking at it. Even though there has been some, it's you know, it's had some coverage in some books, some coverage in some articles. To me, it was the first real attempt at a comprehensive. And the interesting thing about that is, yeah, there's certainly been a lot written on spay fishing and swinging flies for steelhead in general. And you know, when you look at some of the books that have mainly come from the West Coast. But a lot of anglers in the Great Lakes feel that there's some major difference between the two fish, the Great Lakes fish and the, and the, I'm not one of those, but 
there and it seems like the audience in the Great Lakes prefers a book that is written by somebody in the Great Lakes dealing with Great the rivers and the Great Lakes. Yeah. yeah, and and the conditions that you encounter and the uh, you know the various situations that present themselves. So from that standpoint, it was advanced in that it was the first that really went down that road of you know really committing to swinging a fly and using a two-handed rod. You say that you you told me that you go to BC every year for the last twenty years, right? So what is the big difference then between the two fisheries in your experience? Um, I mean, not the fisheries, but the methodology and how you're fishing for them. You know, for the most part, I would say almost nothing. I mean, I, I use the same rods, lines, flies. I mean, my fly box that I use in the Great Lakes and use in British Columbia is interchangeable. I mean, every fly in there I use in both places. So to me, there is very little difference in how a fish reacts to a fly given a certain set of circumstances or conditions. What about dry flies, Rick? Um, Is that just simply a water temperature factor? I don't know. I There are certainly some dry fly opportunities in the Great Lakes. You know, I've, I've only caught, you know, less than a handful, but I don't try as often as I do when I'm out west, actually, in B.C. But it just does seem like some rivers, even in B.C., seem to be more conducive to getting fish to come up to the surface than others and it seems like the same opportunity the same things exist here and some rivers seem to be a little more conducive to that than others do you think that if these fish as smolts spent more time in the tributaries that they would be more prone to taking dry flies i, I think so, so i what's think the average life uh, cycle of a smolt in the tributary before it turns around and goes back to the great lakes the fish in new york state so there's two rivers in New York State that have, uh, you know, fair number of uh, natural, fair amount of natural reproduction, and the one I'm most con- um, that I know the best is the Cattaraugus. Okay. And there's a handful of tributaries. I think you did a casting clinic there a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. There's a couple tributaries that produce a fair amount of wild steelhead. For the most part, they they just live in the stream for one year. So they're they're smolting after one year for the most part. So that's most like our fish too. It's like our winter steelhead mm-hmm. then. Yep. They're just simply there's not enough. Uh, it's not prolific enough for right. them to stay there, yep. so they don't spend too right. much time. Yep. So is that really the big? Are there any systems where they do stay for four years, like they do in BC? Four years is smolts. The one that I would see, we fish the Grand River in Ontario okay. um, a fair amount, and that one actually it's interesting because of the one river where. There probably is the best opportunity for dry flies. It's there. Funny you should say yeah. that. <laughs> and, yes. and the fish do spend more time in the river. And you'll even see situations there where I think some of the fish will stay and they don't even move out to the lake. Some of them just stay right in the river and I think turn into adults right inside the river and just never, just as you'll see on some rivers out west, yeah. where they just never really turn into migratory steelhead. I know out west it's typically the females who have to go back to the ocean mm-hmm. because they need a higher fat content mm-hmm. yep. for their eggs. Is yep. it the same thing here, have you found? I, I you know, I, I don't know if there's any, been any studies that would um, indicate that, but my own, uh, I guess, um, experiences would indicate that the fish that I catch in the summertime that have been 17 to 20 inches that seem to be just hanging around tend to be males so it's very interesting now i've I've noticed when i fish the grand that that's one of the few rivers out here where i do quite well on traditional presentations Mm -hmm. uh subsurface stuff true grease lining smaller 
classic flies. Right. And that's that, it's all kind of clicking for mm-hmm. me. So maybe that's a direct result of them spending more time in the system as smolts. Uh, it's very possible. There are, you know, that, that river depends on, basically it's 100% natural reproduction. You know, any hatchery fish that would be in there is just a pure stray. So, and there's not, I don't know if I've even caught a hatchery fish there. Got so, it. Yeah. Now talk to me about swinging flies out here. When did you see it really pick up? Because I remember, how old am I now? Okay, so I'm be 33. I remember coming out here when I was, so about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. 10, even eight mm-hmm. years ago, people saying, oh, there's no use for that stuff yeah. out here. That's not how we fish in yeah. them, their parts. Right. You know? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And now every time we turn around, somebody is the new spay pro. Yeah. Talk to me. What happened? I Well, I think a lot of it has to do with me. I, I, a lot of these things, they just seem to, you know, they, they just seem to mushroom in as much as it's a, you know, one person telling another person and telling a group and, you know, so it's the, the pyramid effect of that. Yeah. I think though, probably the biggest thing has been the uh, change in equipment and the advancements of equipment, um, particularly with, you know, switch rods and, and short headlines that have just kind of changed the game when it comes to, you know, some of these smaller rivers that we have, you know, because there, there's some great, as we talked about the Grand huge river you know river near my you know the niagara that i like to fish the, mm-hmm. the lower niagara huge river but what we have throughout much of the great lakes is just some you know medium-sized even smaller rivers so you know the the uh switch rods the the, the shorter two-handed rods with short headlines really match up well for that yeah even the spay cast on the single hand yeah. rod will work yeah exactly so yeah. you were doing this 20 years ago in bc well, I'll, I'll tell you two things. I'll tell you two stories there. Okay. Um, one is I was using a spay rod here in the Great Lakes as long ago as 20 years. But that was an interesting journey because when I first started, it was with about a, if I, I'm going to think it was about a 15-foot, 9-10 weight St. Croix. Oh, St. Croix. I yeah. thought you had the big brownie. No, no. This is a, just a big old stick. And, you know, and... So the line must have been genius back then. Well, and then, yeah. And then the line was, you know, I bought a spay line. It was a, you know, 9-10 weight spay line. All it really was was a big old double taper. Yeah. So, I mean, so it didn't, it didn't take me long to figure out that somehow this just wasn't matching to what, you know, that to what I had in mind probably sometime though so i started working trying to get you know find shorter rods and i um started i I remember actually sage put out in the late 90s i still have the rod um the late 90s put out a 11 foot i think it was three inch eight weight and it was really like you know before it's time in terms of a, a switch rod so I started using that, but again, the, the lines just weren't working. So my first attempt, and I, you know, really this was a almost probably a precursor of a Skagit. What I felt is that I needed something, a really short headline. Instead of a long belly line, I needed something short that could kind of just make 30, 40, 50 foot casts and, mm. uh, you know, turn over a tip, turn over a heavy fly. So what I used was uh, an old pike taper. I found a, um, an old, I think it was a court line. I still got it at home. It's all, it's red. It's all cracked up. I eventually had to retire it. But I think it was a 10, 11 weight pike taper. And so it had just had an you know, exaggerated forward taper line with a real short head at the front. 
and it worked like a dream. As soon as I put it on there, I said, all right, I got something going on here. And then I remember uh, I talked to Jerry Seam at Sage, and he built a rod. He at least built a prototype, kind of, that he got that same line and built a prototype that was able to cast that line. Right. So, um, you know, that really changed the game for me in terms of fishing some of the smaller rivers, and I would say that was probably by the late 90s. And who were you... Who are you hanging out with in these parts who understood that methodology? Or at least who was open-minded to it? Yeah, you know, one one person that, you know, that I've fished with quite a bit since then, and and he's never, I mean, he came from the other, I you know, I, I caught my first steelhead, you know, I'd say, I'll be willing to admit it, I caught it on bait, and then I caught it on, you know, caught my first fish on, on gear, and then, you know, certainly gravitated to, to, to fly fishing by the time I was in my late teens. I think you should be proud of that, by the way. Yeah. I'm yeah. proud of my bait days. I oh, learned yeah. so yeah, much yeah. about fish behavior. I, absolutely. Absolutely. I learned just the very basics. You start from, you know, you start from ground up at yeah. that point. I agree with that. But, you know, it was, there wasn't a lot, you know, there wasn't a lot of other people to kind of bounce things off of. I was really pretty much on my own. Um, but one one person I still fish with, his name's Nick Pianessa, um, he he and I, uh, or he he started swinging flies for steel. As I think, I don't think he's ever caught a fish on any other way but that. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I think, you know, we were kind of able to that continue in that advancement. That was probably, 90s. it would have been late 90s or somewhere around 2000. You know, some a few of the guys up in Ontario, yeah. um, Larry Halleck, oh, he, yeah. he took to the two, two-hander pretty early. And, um, you know, so I think we all kind of, you know, bounce things off of one another. And certainly, again, in the last, things have just blossomed in the last 10 years with the rods and it's the lines and everything. Boomed. Yeah. So were you looking at your fishery and looking at the people in the industry going, oh my goodness, you guys, you have to know about this. Or were you keeping it to yourself? I mean, how are you going to manage that? You know, the one, the one thing I, that looking back at it, I'm not sure what I was thinking. I, I really should have, you know, I, I'm sure Ed Ward and Deck Hogan were thinking the thing, thinking the same way when they were on the Skagit, probably had gone through the same mental process that hey, these long belly lines these two-handed rods look like they could really help us, but these lines are just not where it's at. But I, I do look back at that, and I wish I would have um, kind of pushed that a little bit more in terms of getting a line design back in those days, because I really kind of, you know, was on to something. I just really kind of went with what I had, and I just, I, you know, there just wasn't enough other people fishing two-handed rods that I, I don't think I saw it, that I was just trying to promote swinging a fly, even using a one-handed rod. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't push it as hard as, um, you know, I, I, I should have, I probably could have really been on to something different back then. So, but anyways, it was still, it was, uh, you know, it's something that I am proud of that I kind of thought of it and came up with that idea. So you should be. And I know, I remember when I talked to Jerry Seam about it, I mean, he was, he was, oh yeah, it's bike taper. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, and then we, we talked to, so that was that. Then going to, to British Columbia... You know, I'll, I'll credit Lonnie with certainly inspiring me. I, I know when I saw, you know, when I watched his tapes, it was just like no question that I had to get out there and had to get out there soon. And uh, my brother went out maybe a year or two before I first went out there. So he kind of laid the groundwork and had 
done some of the research. But when I first went out there in the mid-90s, there was, I don't think, I I can't remember, but I don't think anybody was fishing two-handed rods, or if it was, it was five percent of the people yeah there were there sure weren't very many yeah. people this podcast has been great because it's really allowed me to get a true timeline yeah and yeah that sounds about right there'd be yeah. just a very few there, a small group of people there was very few if i i mean maybe yeah like i said five to ten percent would probably would have been about right but then every year after that every year you went back it was more and more and more uh, as a percentage mm-hmm. and um and again it kind of goes with the line started getting better in the in the even by the you know the late nineties. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Rio was making the you know the wind cutter type lines and things like that. And even though, you know, they weren't the the, the big you know the short headlines yet, those were all much easier to manage in a wider range of conditions and, and uh, casting situations. So and then pretty much from there every year it's just increased until now when you go out there it's you know, I don't know if anybody fishes the one handed rod anymore. It's making me go back to exploring my one-handed yeah, rod uh-huh. just to fish a little mm-hmm. bit differently. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. But okay, let's do a little bit of a rapid fire here. Okay. I want to talk about your book. Okay. So what I want you to do is I want you to, to do me a favor. Okay. Your advanced fly fishing for Great Lakes Steelhead book. Mm-hmm. I want you to give me somebody who I feel could can safely say I've done some advanced fly fishing <laughs> yeah. for, for steelhead. <laughs> I want you to tell me three aha moments you think I might find in this book. Um, hmm, that's an interesting, um, we can start small. Let's start, let's start gentle. Give somebody (laughs) who's new to fly fishing the top aha moment. You think somebody who's new is going to get out of this book? Um, I think probably what somebody would learn from that even more than the actual presentation or casting is, um, behavior of the fish. Ooh, okay, do tell. And um, understanding water temperatures. I think if there's one thing that... Hey, you put that in here? Yeah. Oh, okay, excellent. I think, I think if there's one thing that... So we talked about the similarities between Great Lakes fishing and West Coast fishing in that you know, I use pretty much the same tackle, mm-hmm. same presentation, same flies. One thing that I see different about it is understanding how conditions impact steelhead activity and how they impact how they'll take a fly. Oh, I love this discussion. And the one thing that I think can occur in the Great Lakes more than on western rivers, and again, this is just you know my feeling, is the dramatic change in water temperatures. Mm-hmm. Why? Now, uh, well, I don't think, you know, our rivers are you know smaller. A lot of them don't have groundwater influence. So a cold snap at night can change water temperatures you know seven eight ten degrees i mean i saw one day last week i was looking at the chart on the cataraugus and this was a pretty extreme cold front water temperature dropped 20 degrees in a day oh my see i i carry when i fish i carry a thermometer yeah and i've started doing that since studying Mm -hmm. atlantic salmon and Mm -hmm. really understanding that water temperature Mm is huge yep and i don't think i've ever seen i mean if I see it drop any more than three degrees, right. that's substantial to Yeah, me. it is. And it's substantial to fish. So when you get a drop that's five degrees, seven degrees, it just really, you know, slows them down. I mean, their their metabolism, you know, I wouldn't say shuts down, but it slows down dramatically. Yeah. So as a, an angler, particularly one that when you're swinging a fly and expecting that fish to actually, you know, chase the fly and go and grab it, that's a huge factor. And, um, you know, understanding that is, uh, 
you know, really comes into play from, from a success standpoint. I mean, I would be willing to, and I've, I've charted this out to some degree, but I'd be willing to say 90%, maybe even more of my steelhead are caught when the water temperature is stable or, or when it's going up. Right. And, um, I, you know, so when you have a situation where it's dropping throughout the day, dropping in the late afternoon, evenings, it, it really slows things down. But I think we're, you know, we're so, so what could somebody learn? If you get a cold night and your water temperature drops five or seven degrees overnight, there's no real hurry to get it on the water first thing in the morning. You're better music off. to my yeah. ears. <laughs> you're better off being there about 10 or 11 o'clock and, you know, fishing till dark and letting that. Uh, so if you're trying, you know, if you have a half a day to fish, that's a situation. Go out in the afternoon. That's so that so water water temperature is, you know, certainly something I pay close attention to. What do you think is the marker point where things start to change? You know, I, I see two things there. I see about 40 degrees is where I notice uh, a bit of a difference in just overall activity and attitude. They'd be super sluggish, wouldn't they? Yeah, but they're still, you know, what it comes down to, it seems like they're still, yeah, they're sluggish at 40 degrees, but they'll still chase a fly pretty good. It just seems like once you get beyond that, going lower, it, it just seems to kind of incrementally slow the fish down. Do they hold in different water? In definitely. Well, definitely when they're in 30 degrees versus 40 degrees. I mean, I, you know, when you get into 30 degree situations, the fish seem to hold in much slower water, deeper pools, you know, out of the current. Right. But the other thing about water temperature, to me anyways, it's, it just seems uh, it's, it's the movement of the temperature. You know, fish can still be fairly aggressive through the winter time, fairly aggressive, I mean, in, in a relative sense in water temperatures that are 30 degrees, you know, 35, 34 degrees, if the water has stabilized at that temperature for a period of time. So I think that's what I really see is, you know, fish can be still pretty grabby in that water temperature range. But if it's gone from 45 down to 35, then, you know, in a short period of time, not so much. But once it's been in that 35 degree range for a period of time, um, you know, they get acclimated to it, seems like, anyways. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's not even species-specific. Yeah. You think about it, you go, you know, you get locked out of your house in this in a snowstorm. Mm-hmm. All you want to do is get back in. But if you stay outside for a bit, you get used to it, and you go skiing, right? That's right. Yeah, no, I do think that's, um, you know, a good analogy. Okay, so what so. about what about when they change to take a, like, a dry fly? Have you found, I know that for me, anyway, I've done a lot of reading, and I found that, the one consistency I found with people who discuss this is about the 54 to 55 degree range, there seems to be a switch where the fish are more prone to coming up. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people seem to use that as their mm-hmm. gauge. What, mm-hmm. Have you had any experience with that out here? Well, I would say that um, even if it's not just looking at dry flies, I do think that you know when you have water temperatures in that high, yes, in that range, high 40s, low, low 50s, or mid to low 50s, that seems to be when they're really at their, you know, their their prime in terms of you know aggressive behavior mm-hmm. that seems to really be in their wheelhouse in terms of um, the right range of temperature so that's when they'll be more likely to move up in the water column whether it's all the way to the surface or just to move up a few feet to grab a fly or you know move a longer uh, distance to grab a you know a swung fly yeah and you talk about all this in your book yes this is great yeah. okay yeah. what's an, what's a what's another aha you know I, I think somebody in the in the Great Lakes would appreciate the thoughts I have on trying to find water to yourself. Yeah, uh, can we I mean, talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you go to the most popular rivers in the Great Lakes and you go to the most popular access points, 
you know, there's a good chance you're going to be turned off by what you see in terms of people. When I fish the elk, I know yeah. that, that I've, yeah. I've seen it publicly and it yeah. made my stomach upset. Yeah. And I've seen it privately and it made my stomach upset. Yeah. I, I have very mixed emotions right. on this. Yep. Can you talk to me about this? Um, you know, you'll even see throughout my book how almost every photo, if there's a background, there's no other anglers in it. And, yeah. You know, I get I get that so often when I'm when I'm if I'm giving a presentation, you know, there must be trick photography or uh, <laughs> Photoshop. Yeah. Uh, you know, where's all the people? You know, I put a, a, a tremendous amount of effort into getting away from people when I'm fishing. I mean, I, I generally like people, but not so much in my pool when I'm fishing for steelhead. I don't Sorry. Think, who but, gets uh, into fishing yeah, yeah. to be social, really? <laughs> exactly. I mean, isn't the whole point to get away from everybody? Yes. So I guess my question to you is this. If we really want to encourage people to get away from mm-hmm. the busyness, and I, and, I, and, and I believe that people do need to learn to explore again on their own right. away right. from GPS and Facebook. Yep. They need mm-hmm. to explore. Yep. How do we promote that for everyone's sanity and for an environmental mm-hmm. stance and then not just end up destroying those rivers? I yep. mean, how, what's the fine line? How do we balance this as people who are trying to make this sport grow, but also keep our fisheries healthy? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely uh, something that I think we've all struggled with. Anybody that's in the industry for any period of time, I mean, there's just there is that balance of you know you need to promote a you know you know a, a, a certain situation, a certain fishery to you know generate some interest and business, but at the same time, uh, you know you want to preserve. And, and quite honestly, that you know rivers do need a certain amount of following, or they won't get preserved. So there, there's just a total fine line there. And yeah. like you said, I mean, sometimes you get dragged into people's perceptions when you're not even promoting a river, and you get dragged. I've, you know, I've been, I've had that situation myself. You know, I think, uh, I think a lot of it is just trying to spread out the pressure as best as possible. And you know, I certainly talk about, you know, again, that in my book. It's just my own personal philosophy. First of all, just trying to put. A tremendous amount of effort into getting away from main access points. I mean, it's amazing how much open water you can find by hiking a half a mile or a mile without you know, where possible. Right, absolutely. Without you know, making sure that it's um, you know, I either have permission or it's on public land. Okay. That's one thing about the Great Lakes. There's a lot of areas where there isn't public land, but there are you know, if you understand the access laws, there's a lot of areas where there is public land, public fishing rights, things of that nature. How can um, somebody better understand the access laws? Uh, they they vary by state, so I mean that would that would take an entire podcast to go through. Okay. But you know, I think each each state now has you know their their division of MNR have pretty good websites, and so okay. um, you know there's really the opportunity to either go on and see what their general laws are. I know in New York State you can go and. Um, see where all the public fishing rights are, okay. all the public accesses. So, I mean, there's good information out there to get you started. Yeah. You know, and you can, uh, you know, draw your conclusions from there and, 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 you know, draw your, make your own strategy. So that's one thing I like to do. I just, I'll go to great lengths and, you know, I, and I'll, I'll be in situations too where I'll hike way into areas where I know people will need generally for a from a comfort level, we'll need to hike out by two thirty or three o'clock, and mm-hmm. I'll stay till six o'clock and put a headlamp on, and you know, hike out in the dark. And Great. Um, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it just takes a little longer, but you know, you had those last two or three hours all to yourself because everybody else needed to get out of the. Um, the other thing I like to do is fish. You know, conditions that aren't the best. Water's just coming into the the, the day or two that people are waiting to get on the water. Well, I'll, I'll be. I'll try to get out there and 
fish them those days before. So you, you know, where people are intimidated because the water's still off color or it's too high. I like to go out, and this is an advantage of a two-handed rod. I like to go out on windy days, yeah. you know, where other anglers, are, you know, even uh, gear anglers will stay away from real, you know, extreme wind with a two-handed rod. You can pretty much at least, you know, get a get a line out there pretty consistently and take advantage of that. But the other thing too that I really, you know, enjoy doing is taking advantage of the shoulder period. So, you know, the runs, you know, try to the first few weeks before the season start first uh or you know the last weeks are fishing into the winter time you know can you do that and not be fishing on reds yeah absolutely i mean through the winter time here um yeah they really the fish don't really start to spawn until that water time water temperature starts to warm up until you know in the late february march april so i mean you have a good opportunity through the winter time to do that coming up rick and i play some quick rapid fire questions and i ask him to look a little into the future Again, thank you to Farlex Reels for making this episode possible. Today, Farlex makes both a click and pull direct drive reel and a multiplier, each of which are perfect for fighting steelhead and salmon. Function and style go hand in hand with these reels, and they are truly works of art. Simple yet elegant, timeless yet historic. If nothing else, open your eyes to the mastery of designer Tim Gelinas and check his reels out at www.farlexreels.com. something we should be doing instead of trying to encourage people to get out and explore more is trying to bring some light and attention to other species yeah i think that's there is and i think there's uh, you know a fair amount of that going on in terms of i think you know the the species that fly fishermen pursue seems to be broadening because you know? your other passion is uh, my other <laughs> yeah my other passion is uh well i i've had too many you know fishing passions over the years and I love fishing for trout and but um and you know in, in warm water but uh, one thing that I've really focused on in the last well and again pretty much in that same 20 last 20 or 25 year period but I've really been uh, focusing on it recently is musky fishing on a fly mm-hmm. and um that's just a, it's a it has some similarities to steelhead fishing in how, that how how so um just as a, as a yeah, the similarity the similarities are the persistence. You know, persistence, fly in the water. Um, you know, not taking a break, trying to just stay consistent. You know, one of my I feel a keys to steelhead fishing is just making a same cast, repeatable cast, just trying to cover water in that grid. And um, you know, I think musky is very similar. You want to make a good cast every time don't want to waste time you want to you don't want to waste time with the, the fly in the air a lot you want your fly in the water as much as possible and just that persistence just that 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 next cast could be the fish mm-hmm. and um you know you just don't you just don't give up until you know it's absolutely time to go home or it's dark out so i think it's pretty safe to say that you're not a numbers guy no no i i some for some reason i just enjoy a challenge as soon as it gets i, I honestly as soon as Fishing begins to get easy for me. I want to up the bar. Yeah, I think, I think that's how it is. I think that reason is just experience, yeah. really, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty standard. I don't even want to say progression, but it is. It is a yeah. progression as mm-hmm. an angler. I think so. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Because it's something I've been really, pa- I'm very mm-hmm. passionate about, mm-hmm. and I've actually been traveling on this circuit, doing a presentation, trying to ed- educate people on history. Mm-hmm. Because for me, that was kind of my next step. Mm-hmm. You know, you do at first, it's how many fish you can bring home. Yep how many fish you can catch and the biggest fish and then kind of hardest fish and now I'm at the stage where I want to catch 
not even a fish in the most difficult method because mm-hmm. I mean I don't mind I could all fish dry flies or, or um, right. subsurface presentations all yeah. day long but I wanted to explore something deeper and for mm-hmm. me that was the history mm-hmm. so I get off on reading Hag Brown mm-hmm. and then going to Vancouver Island mm-hmm. and walking the Heber and just knowing yeah. that he walked the, that river too yeah. even if I don't catch anything right. I know that I'm following um, some very rich history yes mm-hmm. so that's my next step mm-hmm. do you think that with the internet and all of the amazing technology we have today mm-hmm. and all this fancy gear that we're we're focusing more on the numbers or less on the numbers and I, and I say this because I hear a lot of people arguing about it so the old guys think that the new guys are all about the numbers but I see the new guys fighting for a ton of conservation issues and they're saying to me but look at all the old guys yeah. with the hundred fish lined out on yeah. the ground yeah. So, do you think that it really hasn't? There is no difference from sixty years ago to now, as far as numbers go. You know, uh, that's, there's a lot of lot of thoughts in my head after that. Um, yeah, sorry, you know, no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, a couple of things, though. One, yeah. one, I do think. I mean, I just look at what's available. My brother and I were having this conversation just the other day. It just seems like so many fisheries are in such good shape today versus maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It just seems like the opportunity to, and we were just marveling at the number of like big brown trout we see on Facebook and things of that nature right now. Out here. I mean, mean, yeah, just everywhere across the country, you know, across North America. I mean, it just, I mean, those types of numbers and, you know, so I I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a difference in that yeah, like you said, you see the old guys with the dead fish back in the day. Well, there wasn't that, as many anglers back in those days, and the ethic was different. But it just seems like we are charging into a, like a a new peak period in terms of fishing opportunity out there. I just think we have you know more enlightened management and catch and release, and and uh, you know I think professional managers in, in some areas are, are doing a real good job with the fisheries to a point where you know I. I think that it's it's almost being the old, I guess, generation is just kind of moving over for kind of a whole different type of, you know, fishing experience nowadays. I do think that the younger anglers that I see today seem to be more interested in a quality experience than maybe younger anglers were even when I was younger. They seem to be, at least many of the anglers that I see today are interested in it, but they also have the opportunity for that because I think the fisheries are in, in a lot of areas are in better shape now than maybe 20 years ago. But what about in BC, for example, Was- Washington, let's use Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, their fisheries are disastrous. Right, right. And, and, and I guess when I say, you know, some fisheries are in better shape, I'm kind of looking at things that know. Overall basis, not just a not and not a steelhead basis. Because okay. you're right. I okay. mean, there's no question that you know those have just declined. You know, sadly, in the last that same time period, uh, it's ten to twenty years mm-hmm. for sure. Do you talk about numbers in your book? Absolutely. You know, and and about the importance of a quality experience. I mean, I think that's what I was going back to even before with the um, you know talking about trying to get away from people I mean to me that really is if this so again an aha moment in there would be to try to encourage somebody to find their own little piece of paradise somewhere in the Great Lakes you know when I compare the Great Lakes to the West Coast I mean in many ways there's no comparison but throughout the year I can have you know experiences in the Great Lakes that are certainly on par with what I experience out West but you you need to look a little bit harder and plan a little bit more to uh, be able to find that. 
Which is all part of it. Yeah, it is to me. But that was the other thing. Now, as you, you were talking about, you know, following along, you know, the road of Hag Brown. And to me, when I travel, I mean, I, I like what we have here in the Great Lakes, you know, the steelhead fishing. I, I mean, it, it can really be phenomenal at times. I know that anglers on the West Coast would see that this is some type of, um, you know, a manufactured type of fishery. Uh, maybe there's, you know, certainly I've seen that discussed on, you know, articles and, and you know, on Facebook that, you know, that these aren't real steelhead because they don't go out to salt water. You know, I, I, I mean, the, the debate really, if, if you say a steelhead's uh you know a native west coast fish then i mean there's no you know no discussion beyond that what but, is the definition of a steelhead uh, to me it's just a it's a migratory rainbow trout so it doesn't really involve necessarily salt water but i mean you'd certainly get differing opinions on that but so anadromy has nothing to do with it that's not the way it's been described to me by a biologist but you know certainly that's i think open to a lot of interpretation yeah to me, I you know I would never sit here and try to argue. Well, you know the Great Lakes is just as good as the West Coast because I mean you really it, it's hard to make that claim when they're native here and they've been transplanted here. But there are what you know certainly great wild fisheries in the Great Lakes that provide an opportunity that's on par again when you when you can find it and uh, when you look for it. And the other thing that's, you know, the Great Lakes steelhead fishery has a, a pretty rich history in that steelhead were, you know, again, admittedly transplanted from the West Coast, but they were brought here in like 18, I'm going to say around 1875, mm-hmm. when, when railroad cars first started coming across the country to, and it was part of, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's plan to redistribute, you know, fish throughout the, the country. So the interesting fact about that is, Brown trout came to this country a little bit later than actually steelhead came to the Great Lakes. So, I mean, most of us would consider a brown trout a, you know, a fish that, you know, a, a trout that's, um, you know, well ingrained in the history of fly fishing in, in, you know, North America. And steelhead have been in the Great Lakes for a longer period of time than that. So, I mean, at least it's something that, you know, kind of points to that there, there's some history there. And, um, you know, all the rivers that probably have wild fish in them today probably had wild fish in them at the turn of the century, you know, mm-hmm. turn of the 18, you know, when it, in the 1900s. Have you found a book out there yet that really highlights the history of Great Lakes fishing? You know, I, I didn't, I, I haven't really. I mean, there, there are a few that talk anecdotally about, mm-hmm. you know, experiences in the 20s and 30s you know with steelhead I've, I've heard some stories uh, you know especially back when I was much younger and and talked to some individuals that had were fishing the Cattaraugus in the 30s and 40s and you know talked about the runs back then I mean they weren't they were sparse but they existed you're right mm-hmm. there is so much history yep. I mean way I know people are proud of Hemingway Hemingway fished here I right. get it but this this predates mm-hmm. Hemingway. Mm-hmm. It's special, and I think that there's a lot that could probably be dug up. That's right. I think see? there is. You'd really have to do some digging. I think, uh, you know, in some of the again in some of the the deep closets of, of some M and R offices mm-hmm. and things like that. I'm sure there exist some reports and some yeah. again stories, anecdotal tales. Better to dig now before you. Yeah, lose it. that's right, and I'm sure some of it's probably already been lost. Uh, but I was going to go back to one yeah, other I'm thing sorry. that you mentioned about too is yeah, you know yeah. I think in terms of anglers today and you know again following the idea of following in the, the footsteps of Hag Brown. I mean I, I I think that's one thing that 
when I travel now, I want to. I really enjoy traveling to areas that, when I travel, that have native fish, that have some type of history, and kind of understanding some of what is behind it all. I think the older I get, the more appreciation you have for the people that were in front of you and did, you know, influence the, that fishery. And it is interesting to go down that road and find out a bit about it. Yeah, and not everybody gets it. Yeah. It's been a really hard, I'll be honest, it's been a very difficult journey for me. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, let's be honest, my whole life is fishing. Mm-hmm. I don't do this on weekends. I do yep. this 365 mm-hmm. days a year. So I feel like I may have outgrown or outaged mm-hmm. a lot of my peers. Yep. And I really don't belong in any group. What can I do to get them to be interested? Or is it something that can only come to you in your own due time? I do think that time is a you know is a huge element of understanding or appreciating history. I do I, I see it myself. I mean, the older you get, you know, the more you begin to you look at maybe what you have brought or contributed, you know, in some small way to to the sport or to other people. And I think you start to look around and and start to understand that there was people before you that you know, that did this, that had similar thoughts, uh, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, I think it's, you know, pretty safe to say that no matter what idea you come up with in fly fishing, somebody probably thought of something (laughs) similar to that at some other point in time. And, um, you know, for me, I know it's just been age, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate, you know, that element of it, you know, the, Mm -hmm. even though that, you know, I've certainly read books. I think I've, I think I've appreciated it to some degree, even at a younger age. You know, reading Joe Brooks mm-hmm, right. and Hag Brown, and um, you know, but at the same time, it really you really start to focus on it in time and as you mature, what that really has meant. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's no, that's 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 true. I yeah. guess, and I can even go out to make it kind of feminine here, if I mm-hmm. if I might. So you can look at a rose, mm-hmm. and you appreciate that rose, and you enjoy it. But if you understand how that rose was planted, how it mm-hmm. grew, how it came to be, right. you just appreciate it a little more. That's right. And it's up to you. You can yeah. you can appreciate it to whichever depth you, yeah. you choose. So oh, okay. So but I, I think you know, and, and that's and but that makes a good point. I mean, how do how do you explain it? How do you get people to understand it? I do think that you've made a good analogy, and a, a steelhead would be just like planting a rose. Um, but it even you know, it, it, you have to. It has to protect itself against bugs and 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 things of that while while it grows up. And it, you know, there's just so many things that can go wrong in a you know a fish's life, a steelhead's life. That you know, I think it really does. If you kind of explain it that way, and what what a fish has to go through to grow up in the stream, go out to a big body of water, and end up back there in four years. I mean, I think that in itself should give some people a, appreciation. a greater appreciation. And then you know, kind of knowing that. People have recognized that for years and have been trying to protect it for years. Maybe that would help give some perspective on it. I agree. Third aha moment. Now, what I want you to think of for this aha moment is what did you get stumped on in this book? One point you got stumped on where you had to really dig into your research to make sure that you were right and accurate on what you were sharing. Because we all have some sort of writing where we've had to really make sure we were correct. Yeah, I think I think the area that I really had to uh, make sure that 
that I did some extra work and research on was just the lines and the tips. Oh. I mean, I think I, you know, a lot of the the fishing part of it, I I, I kind of just wrote from experience, and you know, I think and you know, taking notes for years and years and having things in my head that I think were important. But when it really came down to, I wanted to try to, you know, provide a good working knowledge of of the various types of heads and lines that are available to for fishing today without I think really what made it difficult is it just changes so dramatically from even year to year and month to month and some manufacturers always working on something new to try to keep the information current but to try to keep presented in a way that it wouldn't date itself too quickly yeah so I think that was probably the the hardest part of writing that book actually and trying to explain heads and tips in a way that somebody just starting out would be able to get it and hopefully also you know bring something to somebody that has been at it for a bit yeah because it can be very intimidating for a lot of people Mm -hmm. okay um i kind of want to rapid fire some questions okay okay first thing that comes to mind and don't worry i won't be inappropriate okay rapid fire thoughts on fishing and steelhead who are laying on beds or reds uh absolutely no way i mean there's just there's so much opportunity to fish for steelhead in Great Lakes that to, you know whether they're whether you're fishing in a river that has natural reproduction or not, it's it's a you know no way. Do you mention that in your book? Absolutely. Awesome. Thoughts on fishing indicators? I like swinging a fly, so I, I again I would rather figure out a way to catch one on a on a swung fly, whether and take a chance on that I'm going to be able to do that during the course of a day than ever to waffle and fish an indicator. Can't, can't remember the last time I fished an indicator for steelhead. Fair enough. Fishing deep or fishing subsurface? Um, I'll fish what the conditions dictate. Excellent answer. Yeah. Okay. So if I can fish on top, quite honestly, I, you know, when I, when I go to British Columbia and it's, uh, September and water temperatures are agreeable and that's all I'll do is fish on the surface. The first two years I ever went out there and I fished bulkly pretty much those two times. It was like for two weeks, birds at a time. Never fished anything other than uh, dry fly. Because the conditions were probably yeah. perfect. And even when they weren't. Okay. <laughs> weighted fly versus unweighted fly. I prefer to fish an unweighted fly. I prefer to cast an unweighted fly. Just just makes everything a little bit easier. But I have to say that, you know, if I if I need to get the fly down, particularly in fast water, deep slots, quick slots, that, you know, I'm not adverse to, to fishing off a conehead or a fly with some eyes on it. Okay. Tailing gloves. I never use, I, I have a few. I don't use them a lot. I don't ever seem like I need to. I usually can tail them, tail them and then, you know, kind of scoop it under its belly without too much problem. So P- Pennsylvania versus Michigan. Oh, I would say Michigan just, um, you know, out of, out of the fact that there's, you know, a lot of wild fish in Michigan, beautiful rivers. Yeah. First thing that comes to mind when you think of the Niagara River? Power. What do you mean? Don't like water fall hands? in. Oh, oh power. Yeah, okay, got it. Powerful. 200,000 200, CFS. Don't slip and fall. Fishing in urban areas because I hear that you're the guy who fishes in like the ghetto what's going on oh i don't know <laughs> Tell I, me about I, this. I have i don't know recently though if i have is it something that you would oh advise? the only place okay maybe maybe on the genesee river 
in, uh, in Rochester. It might be one place that if uh, you hear gunshots, it might not be somebody deer hunting. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about the biggest conservation issue that you see that's pressing in the Great Lakes region right now. You know, I, that's close well, to, here, that's here would be you. my own issue, but I'm not sure it's really, uh, you know, an issue that's gaining any traction. I'll, I'll give you two. I mean, first, you know, the one that I think actually we can have some impact on is removal of dams. Okay. There's been a few removed, uh, you know, in recent years. Right now, the one that I'm most familiar with is the Cataraugus Creek. There's a dam about halfway, uh, you know, in the middle. There's still 30, there's still 40 miles of river to the dam. But if the dam was removed, if there is fish passage there, there's great spawning water up above. I mean, it's, I think, a really good chance that we could have a, you know, a total run of naturally reproduced steelhead if that dam wasn't there. Are you so, doing anything to be proud? Uh, well, the, the process is already in place. We did, we, we did some work in prior years. process is already in place. There's been studies done. The, uh, the Corps of Engineers has a, a project uh, all planned out to, and I don't think they're going to remove the entire dam. They're just going to take a piece out, have a small little ladder, and uh, it's just a matter of them getting it on their priority queue to a point where it'll be removed. But there's a number of other dams throughout the Great Lakes. So I, I think that's one that, you know, anglers could really have a, uh, you know, impact on. Okay. If there's one that I would like to see at some point, but I think this, you know, I, I would love to see just the, the use of bait in general and, you know, and particularly on steelhead re rivers, just, you know, and this might be radical for some people, but to see that be eliminated. It's very radical. Yeah. Why? You know, I just think there's there's just so many artificial options now that there's no, you know, whether it's, you know, whether you're using, you know, minnow imitations, I mean, not even just talking fly fishing, you know, and conventional tackle. I mean, you know, go, go, go through, uh, you know, a Cabela's or Glass Pro and see some of the, you know, the lures and things that are out there now, I mean, they're amazing. I mean, there's just no reason why people need to use bait any longer. Does but it I just, have some sort of impact on the environment? I just hate seeing, uh, you know, fish, you know, particularly steelhead kill just for people to use a row, you know. Now just, that takes it yeah, to a whole yeah. new level. Okay. Okay. So, I'm on the same page because yeah. I, I learned fishing bait. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, and then, you know, eventually I know. I'll be honest. I was just, I always waitressed when yeah. I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. So I would get bait in my fingernails. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, I, I just right. turned to artificial and I turned to a spoon Yeah. and I became obsessed with swinging yep. spoons. And mm -hmm. then that's where my fly fishing came Right. In. Absolutely. But, uh, that's, yeah. So people are stripping fish. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. it just, and you know, and then even, the other and New York has outlawed this, but I mean there was even issues where people were chumming the water with eggs. I yeah. have heard about this. Yeah, yes. so New York did change the laws. I'm not sure what the what the laws are in all the states in the Great Lakes, but that's just like a no brainer. I mean that you know that that should be changed if it, if it isn't in in other states. So I think those are those are big ones right there. But those I think you know opening up opportunities for you know wild fish development yeah. and removing that kind of behavior. Okay, I'm almost done. Okay, that's um, all right, I'm good. In the fishing industry, what do you see yourself as? Right now, I see myself more as a writer, you know, photographer, I do some instructing. What I see myself down the road, um, you know, I hope in another couple of years to uh, kind of take that back up a notch, back to the instructing and, and even uh, doing a limited guiding schedule again at some point. You want to get back out guiding? Limited, and it'll be more to like on, um, the, on the water teach, teaching, yeah, and not just teach fishing, but teach my philosophies. I guess try to pass that on to some people. You know, try to 
you know, try to find a group of clientele that would be interested in sharing, you know, kind of the day and learning what they can, you know, hopefully beyond just, you know, casting. So, yeah. no, that's excellent. Yeah. I, I, I actually appreciate as somebody yeah. in this sport. I really appreciate that yeah. you're going to do that. I think you yeah. should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I understand that you are doing a film. Tell me about that. We're working on a Great Lakes Steelhead film. The filmmaker is Robert Thompson. He's produced four or five other films, DVDs, and it's going pretty well so far. We've been filming for two years, two falls anyways, not two solid years. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's just kind of reaffirmed my earlier experiences that it's always a challenge to get Steelhead on camera. Um, yes. They're always a bit camera shy, but it, it's really just exploring the world of spay fishing and spay casting in the Great Lakes. Is it a documentary style? It's a bit of each. You know, Robert has done, he's taken a lot deeper than, you know, I originally thought it would go. Uh, he has really interviewed a number of individuals that, relative to history and environmental issues and issues threatening the lakes and the, and the, and the steelhead. Um, throughout the entire Great Lakes, so oh. it will will have a documentary uh, element to it. It will also hopefully show, you know, the passion and zaniness of steelheading and steelheading in the Great Lakes, and you know, hopefully also the the diversity that exists here. Well, that's excellent. I really yeah. look forward to seeing that. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. I, re- I really do. You know, just getting him at the at the pace that I think he would like. Yeah, <laughs> as uh, has been. Um, you know, has been the challenge, but uh, are you using drones? He did start using a drone this this <laughs> oh uh, fall. Yeah. We used a drone on my mm-hmm. show, and I I swear that they put the fish off. <laughs> and I watched some footage after, yeah. and I'm going, you guys, you can yeah. see the salmon yeah. breaking free. I mean, they're yeah. they're racing out yeah. of the shadow. Do you not think this affects the yeah. fishing? Don't use drones. Well, you know, it's interesting. We've had the, a different experience because we were up on the Grand River. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and he so wanted to just catch a situation where he could see, you know, get the hook up of a fish. And he's done that a few times, you know, and, you know, so far. But the first day, he started playing around with his drone, and I hooked a fish when he had the drone up in the air. And then it happened a couple other times after that. So, in our experience so far, has been the drone has been more of a a fish getter. Than, wow, maybe it's getting more yeah, wild. Up. I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think it's just been bad timing, but who knows? Or great timing. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. So. so that's excellent. Okay, well, yeah. we'll look forward for that. Yeah, good. That. Good, good. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to add or ask me? I, I've, I kind of sense, and this is, I mean, more personal than anything, that, you know, at my age, and we've talked about history and we've talked about perspective how you know things do change as you get older and you kind of readjust what your I guess goals are in the sport and you start to see you only have you know when you're at your age you kind of see well there's so many places I want to go and so many places I want to see and I'm just beginning to get to the point in my life where I know I'm not probably going to be able to do all the things that I one day hoped that I would do but I mean my list was you know admittedly way too long and as you get older too you kind of get a little more comfortable with you know what you do have and what you do know and and maybe lose a little of the you know adventure spirit and you just don't have the same energy you do when you're younger so you know I I think I, I just feel myself entering into a time where you know I'm really becoming comfortable with 
you know what I have what with the opportunities I have in front of me and just really I feel myself really just trying to take advantage of every second now that I can be out in the water and when I'm out there I find myself being more fully immersed in the moment than maybe I ever have in the past. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Okay, thank you April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. 